the glamour and excitement of of music kind of is transferred to the philosophy and the philosophy is pretty gl glamorous i think you know especially the stuff i was reading in the 80s you know which was uh roland bart and julia kristeva and you know all those people and um, and in the 90s i started reading i don't know virilio and and that kind of thing uh it's quite exciting and glamorous i think uh, there was a good piece recently by owen hatley about the um the foreign agent series that Semiotex used to do. Do you remember them? Yeah, the I little, read the, the piece. Yeah, it's really little, nice. little black books. They were kind of sexy, <laughs> sexy little books. Uh, so there was a kind of glamour to, uh, you know, it didn't seem like particularly like scholarly work, even though, you know, they were all professors. A lot of them were professors and, you know, had studied deeply and read all the Western philosophy before they wrote, you know, uh, A Thousand Plateaus or whatever. But um, it, it didn't. It didn't feel. Didn't have that lumbering quality that a lot of scholarly work has. It, it felt very, you know, intense and, and glamorous. But yeah, I think probably by if you, if you combine that with you know, uh, hip hop or you know, my bloody Valentine or something, then it's quite a potent combination. Not necessarily intellectually, but like in terms of the combined glamour and, and buzz of of this sexy exciting thinking and then this music that's very exciting sort of i can see why someone who was like 18 or something might be affected quite strongly by it but I, that's what happened to me when that's how i got into it. philosophy really was actually no i was interested you know when i was 15 or 16 i was interested in like what is the meaning of life you know, or why is the world so unfair and unjust you know so i was i was interested in philosophy before i um started reading the music press, but that was where I came across, you know, people combining Foucault and The Fall, you know, or Birthday Party and Nietzsche, you know, you know these sort of quite intense combinations of things. So there were already references, uh, there were already people doing that in the UK? Oh yeah, 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 there were, there, there were particularly on the Enemy, the New Music Express, there were um a bunch of writers who who were you know i mean there would have been intellectuals who would reference you know i don't know marshall McLuhan or you know um or 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 marx or something like that but particularly in the end of the 70s early 80s in the uk um there there there, there was the intake of french ideas and often it was stuff that had just come out in translation so it was actually 10 10 to 15 years old, you know, books that had come out in the 60s in France, but they were sort of arriving and having their impact in um, British academia, uh, particularly in the area of film studies. Uh, there's a guy I know who's writing a whole book about the, the impact of um, uh, French theory on UK intellectual life. And two of the main areas were this magazine called Screen, I think it was called, Uh, which had all these film film critics like Peter Wallen and Laura Mulvey and all, uh, and then um, and then the music press, you know. So that's why he got in contact with me. He interviewed me about uh, how I used to read, you know, read writers like Paul um, Ian Penman and Barney Hoskins, uh, uh, referencing Derrida and Foucault and Roland Barthes and all these things in a very intoxicating way. And a bit later, I became friendly with one of these writers, this guy, Chris Bowen, and he 
uh, when I was a journalist, uh, beginning to be a journalist, and we became friends. Um, and he lent me a copy of, he lent me his own copy of um, Julia Kristeva's *The Power*, *The Powers of Horror*. So, so it's not just you know, it, mostly it was indirect through um, through reading this stuff, but occasionally, you know, people would directly influence you by giving you books. You know? But still, your undergrad studies were history, right? Yeah, that's right. Actually, I applied to do politics and philosophy. There's a peculiar course at Oxford um, called PPE, Politics, Philosophy and Economics. Oh, yeah. Um, and I applied to do that. And I wanted to drop the economics. Um, and then they offered me, I think they correctly divined that I was too interested in continental philosophy. At Oxford, it was a very much about logic, logical positivism and and, and, and sensible, you know, sensible English stuff. They correctly <laughs> gathered that I was not suited to study philosophy at Oxford, but that I had something, you know, that, you know, they thought history would be a better fit. So I, I accepted that. It was actually a good development because I learned a lot doing history. Um, so I did all my reading of continental philosophy in my spare time. <laughs> Well, yeah, but, but it's very interesting. The, the mention that uh, Machin did at the beginning uh, had a reverberation because I was rereading your, your piece, your old piece about the uh, CCRU. Right. And, uh, and as well, it's five years as well since uh, Mark Fisher left us. And I wonder how did you came about to know the CCRU in the first place, and you mentioned uh, this uh, uh, fancy uh, oh, yeah. abs abstract culture, you know? Yeah. Is this true? Uh, did you uh, um, connect with the CCRU activities because of this? Because this was published originally by Robin Mackay. Yeah, yeah. I th I th I'm not exactly sure the sequence of events, but I was friends with Kojo Eshin, who was sort of like a ally of theirs, I think he was an associate member. And I would, you know, I was living in America, but I would come, when I would come to England, I would often go to Kojo's, we'd hang out, he'd play me records, and he'd tell me about stuff, I'd, we'd share ideas, and I'm, I'm fairly certain he must have shown me those things, or told me about these people. But it's also possible that Mark Fisher, or someone, or maybe Robin, just emailed me. I used to get, I had a website, um, from about 96 onwards and I would get you know people would contact me usually because of the books or uh, just because I put kind of inflammatory opinions up on this website <laughs> um, and you know I had a lot of great conversations with people it's quite an early it's still fairly early in the days of the World Wide Web and email so it was kind of a novelty to get like an email from someone you've never heard of Uh, and you know, I would write long, long replies to people. Um, I still had the mindset of, you know, um, of letter writing, you know, and, and the epistolary culture. So, um, so I had these great conversations, and, and probably that's. I think the next stage was then Mark. I think I have somewhere like very early emails from Mark. I kept all my emails um, in documents, so uh, so I actually have correspondence with Mark. I think. Uh, and then they, they sent me these things. And, um, yeah, I was very excited by them. You know, some of it is quite hard to understand, but a lot of it, particularly the stuff that Mark did, was very pretty clear 
and and very kind of aggressive, you know, very not aggressively, like you know, laying down a viewpoint very strongly. It's very intoxicating, and they looked amazing as well. You know, um, so I was really excited, and then um, I guess you know I got the sense something really interesting was going on, and they had some interesting allies like Orphan Drift, and there were some other people that um, was meant to be in the piece that I think. Um, only had a quite small role, but I actually interviewed this guy, Howard Slater, who was doing a fanzine called Breakflow. He's a very, kind of very like, good friend of mine. Very, I'm very close to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we oh, collaborated. Right. Oh, We've done cool. concerts together. Yeah. So, yeah, nice. he was part of this whole scene around extreme techno, hardcore, not the jungle, not really the jungle kind of hardcore, but like the... Praxis, no? With hard Praxis, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, that, yeah, yeah. so it felt like there was, and there was a guy called Matthew Fuller who did interesting stuff, like to do with I don't even know what it was about, like hacking and uh, yeah, yeah. He was like a sort of, he was someone not in academia, but like using academic ideas in this exciting way. Um, so it felt like there's this sort of, um, uh, what do I call it? A kind of para-academia or renegade academia. Yeah, that was the term. Yeah, like a sort of para-academia, like stuff, stuff that was on the borderline uh, between the scholarly and the, and the inflammatory and the renegade, the zam, zam, zam is that, I think is another sort of term I would have thrown around, not really, not really in a, with any real sense of, it, of its historical meaning, but like the idea of something that was subterranean that existed outside, you know, proper channels. Um, and, you, you know, I was, I no, sort of noticed <laughs> some of the texts quoted me or Kojo Eshin, so, you know, it's a little bit flattered to be taken seriously uh, as well. Um, yeah, they seem to be very aware of what was going on in the more interesting music journalism of the 90s and um, and and also, yeah, like it was philosophy that was hip to jungle. That, that in itself was enough to... The, the fact that CCRU centred jungle and drum and bass at the heart of their thinking was like, you know, enough to bring me on board in itself, I think, because I was such a believer in jungle and rave culture in general so it's interesting because there is a lapse of time between the moment in which you publish the piece and then the uh, the whole reaction uh, around ccru that i guess has to do with the anthology that robin published but as well this weird u-turn of uh, nick lamb's words Uh, the right, etc. But it's very interesting because your piece still encapsulates very well what was going on or the general idea about what was going on there at Leamington Spa, etc. Yeah, the, I don't think there was much else written about them. That's one of the main things. And I don't think there was much where someone, like, you know, it, it discusses all the ideas, but it's like a reported piece. You know, I actually went, Lingrafanga paid for me to go to England and I went to their headquarters and I spent the whole evening with them and we had a, ch a Chinese meal uh, uh, together. Um, I met Matthew Fuller, I met Howard Slater in a uh, fairly greasy cafe in Bethnal Green um, I went to Orphan Drift's house, you know, so it's got a reported journalism element to it, which makes it a bit more, I spoke, you know, I did, you know, by that point I'd never been a real journalist until I moved to America and I learned You do secondary reporting. So I spoke to people who, like the Andrew Benjamin, the guy they 
were fighting with CCRU or in yeah. or in, in conflict with, I spoke to people disagreeing with them, like uh, Judith Williamson, who gave some great quotes from a more uh, I wouldn't say traditional left wing, but like a left left wing critique of CCRU. So it's a proper piece of journalism, and it, it, I'm still a little surprised that you know Lingua Franca never ran the piece. No, I think they thought it was too weird. Uh, they were too weird. They weren't sure if these people were real uh, academics. But of course, I'm completely vindicated because, <laughs> uh, you know, if it's, say, say if I was an A&R man, like, you know, if there's such a thing as an A&R person with intellectuals, uh, and I, you know, I could have signed up, you know, <laughs> as a talent spotter, I spotted uh, Mark Fisher, uh, Steve Goodman, a Code 9, you know, Robin McKay and Urbanomic, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of people, uh, several others, like, um, uh, who um, become important thinkers and publishers and or cultural activists, like, you know, like Code 9 is. Uh, you know, I, I, did, I had no idea they were going to do that. But, you know, history has proved me right and Lingua Franca wrong. They should have run the piece. Then they would have had the... Then they could have claimed to spotted these very important people um, early on. Um, so yeah, I feel vindicated. It, a smaller version of it ended up appearing in an Aust- Austrian intellectual magazine, art magazine, uh, and then I put it on the web, and that's how really it sort of had a life, you know, just being on the web that piece. Um, it's interesting because then the, the Guardian piece on accelerationism, how this French philosophy anticipated the future or something like that, it was yeah. written in a s- sort of similar fashion. No? They came here to UWE and they interviewed uh, Ian and then they went to Cornwall and interviewed Robin. In a, it's, uh, But like can, 20 years later or something. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah, absolutely. This yeah. was like yes. 2015 or something like that. But it was the same sort of, well, actually it's a yeah. sort of copycat thing. Uh, and then, uh, do you want to talk or or do you have any opinion, because maybe you don't have one, about how then this sort of um, dirt bag or anti-woke left somehow co-opted some of the ideas that, for example, Mark was uh, introducing in Exiting the Vampire Castle and his later writings. Well, oh, you mean the critique of identitarian? Yeah. Politics. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't really been following what the dirtbag left do so well, much. I mean, what, 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 is, what have they taken from him? How do you think they... Well, I think that the general... Um, obviously, there is some sort of uh, reading that you can take against political correctness and mm. council culture. Mm. So this uh, raw attitude of Marx's uh, writings, I think, mm. for some, mm, let's call it, or I call it, neo-reactionary or, yeah, anti-woke uh, political thinkers. But probably yeah. this has more to do with the uh, Trapo podcast and similar people. They, they found something that already had... Uh, yeah, radical potential, but as well, 
uh, I don't know, it's tricky. I don't know if Matching has uh, something to say about this. Well, I don't know. Maybe if you can connect it, um, if you see, I mean, were you surprised by the turn that, for example, Nick Lan took? And because that was kind of clear or it became kind of clear through the years. But then I guess Mark, I mean, he had this famous fallout with Nick Land, but famous that I actually don't know so much. Did about. he? Oh, I didn't know that. He actually had a falling out with him. Well, I, I, these are just kind of legends that I've been hearing through the years, but apparently they were living in a commu almost like a commune type of situation in Stock Newington. And apparently at some point there was this huge uh, yeah, fallout between Mark and Nick. I don't know the specifics, oh. but uh, I don't know. For me, it kind of connects. It's a kind of catastrophic reaction that I've seen in three figures with different degrees, but a kind of reaction to liberal left or some kind of leftism, you know. Certainly the mm. strongest will be uh, Nick Land. Uh, them, I've seen something similar. How it happens is very complex, but I see mm. something like a kind of allergic reaction to some kind of leftist positions. So the second one will be Nina Power, mm. uh, another person who also, you know, mixed philosophy and music writing and many other yeah, yeah. kind of this transdisciplinary. And the third one, in a much less degree, will be Mark Fisher, with especially mm. the Vampire Castle kind of... Because it's there is a kind of conflict within his thinking in regards to some kind of left position, but at the same time having quite an identitarian position himself in terms of fetishizing maybe it's too strong, but like a strife towards some kind of British working class of the social welfare state maybe that mm. it was in the 60s, 70s, you know, certain kind of elements that was there that seemed very, that they had a very strong impact to 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 Mark and that he, he was defending somehow. That was my impression. So, yeah, I don't yeah. know if you can comment about this catastrophic reaction towards the left from certain thinkers connected to CCRU. Uh, well, I'm probably not familiar enough with... Um with Nick Land's later writings um, to comment. I mean, I, I think I down, I think I've downloaded, is it called the Dark Enlightenment? I downloaded yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> never read it. Uh, I just never had the time. Uh, I, I, I'm sort of academically or in a literal sense of like in a quite detached way, quite fascinated by this turn of events because I've long had kind of an interest in reactionary thinking and, this sort of um, this sort of poisoned view of the world that you get in, in certain artists, and whether it's a writer like Celine uh, or um, I'm trying to think who else, Wyndham Lewis. I read this great little book by Frederick Jameson on Wyndham Lewis. It's yeah. really fascinating because there's something about this sort of mindset that produces quite powerful, very powerful writing, and and um, like Celine or William Lewis writing is very powerful. Yet it also leads them to these, you know, lamentable uh, political positions. 
the sort of disgust with humanity uh, that creates this sort of fevered writing fiction also leads them to the, the, the sort of um, uh, yeah you know it's either fascism or monarchism or you know like there are examples of writers who are monarchists um, royalists of some kind or I don't know there was some uh, there was some writer I forget his name a, a Welsh poet and novelist who believed that the, fut the future of Wales should be that it was be independent but be Catholic and have a, a Welsh king which is just like a, several completely impossible scenarios you know but that he put all his political eggs in this sort of ridiculous uh, fantasy of what Wales would be like I wish I could remember his name he's quite a, he's quite a famous poet I think um, um, yeah, I find I find that sort of reactionary thinking, you know, or someone I don't know. I feel like Kingsley Amos at one point was, you know, uh, a communist towing the, the, you know, the Russian line and then the Soviet line, and then abruptly, um, when the tanks go into Hungary, I think he becomes completely disillusioned, then goes to the other extreme of being this very grumpy sort of conservative uh, reactionary figure. You know, I'm quite fascinated by the. You know, you know, or E.M. Sure, it wasn't E.M. Turin, uh, like a Romanian fascist at one point in his youth, and then he becomes this distempered philosopher of decay and uh, and uh, misery, sort of Morrissey of philosophy. I once described him as. Um, <laughs> so um, I find that, that, that you know, intellectually, I find it quite interesting, and like you know, the idea that people who are reactionary have access to these sort of artistic powers that they're sort of their, their grim view of the world lent itself to a certain kind of poisoned comedy, you know. Um, but yeah, like the political positions are, you know, terrible. And um, um, where was I going with this? So I think in a certain sense, from what I gather when Nick Land's thought has gone, it seems to be most consistent in a way with what he was doing before. Like it's, it takes a certain anti-humanist yeah, impulse within the CCRU and and you know that amazing book he wrote. It is an amazing book on George Bataille. Um, it's full of loathing for humanity, for you know organic biological existence, um, and it's kind of apocalyptic. Has this apocalyptic delirium to it, you know, uh, that sort of language of um, of uh, of, of uh, yeah. Of, of, of fetishizing collapse and, uh, and sort of enjoying chaos and all that kind of stuff. There seems to be more of a logic to that to, to that's been carried through to his compositions. I don't really, I'm not really sure what he politically stands for, but um, it seems to have the same tenor anyway. Whereas you could say that what Mark was advocating politically in his last years is really a long, long way from what the CCIU were about, you know. I've been reading um, uh, Post-Capitalist Desire, and it's full of language to do with care and human yep. flourishing and community. You know, he, he still has a little bit of a, um, I think he has a little aversion to the word community, which is like a sort of aftertaste of CCIU, not liking anything kind of worthy and wholesome. But I think the general idea essentially is community, you know. So it's all these sort of kind of quite humanist yeah, I think he probably still 
re re intellectually reject the idea of humanism. But I mean, if, effectively, it's a kind of like a so social democratic, um, humanist, kind-hearted sort of politics that he's proposing—a politics of joy and and uh, you know, he goes on about relaxation, the need for people to relax and and and. Uh, have less time working, you know, more time just enjoying them things, you know, and enjoying themselves. It's quite a sort of cuddly politics in, in a way that he, got, he seems to be heading towards. Um, and that's a long way from the kind of talk the CCIU were doing in the 90s. Yeah, there is no is like, techno... Yeah, forget the human, <laughs> human, human viewpoint, obsolete... Um, you know, the machine has its own agenda. Technology and capital, spelled with a K, have their own dark will. And humans must be carried along with it, you know. <laughs> I was thinking yesterday because I found this meme that probably you saw before with a graphic chart going downwards from the death of David Bowie in January 2016 and things going shit with Trump, Brexit, the pandemic, etc. And I was rereading your uh, book, Shock, and uh, where you spotted this grim parallelism between the thing White Duke era of David Bowie and Donald Trump and these predictions of a strong leader who would, and I quote, uh, sweep through the Western world with a right-wing, totally dictatorial tyranny. Um, and you said mm. he called for a very medieval, firm-handed, masculine God, awareness where <laughs> we go out and make the world right again. And it's quite interesting because I can see this no? after 2016. And it's tragic because as well the death of Mark uh, presents this need for all of us, this need of care, uh, general awareness of mental health issues, etc. But at the same time, this huge wave of populism, neo-reaction, uh, uh, abject forms of masculinity, etc. And then as well, we were talking about these movements and figures like uh, Kanye West, like that could be the closest thing to, to this Bowie of the Thing White Duke, no? Mm. I don't know if you agree with this, no, but it's like this figure that suddenly represents, uh, yeah, it's the embodiment of, of I don't know, a uh, strong leader for, for the avant pop movement. And I, I don't know if you see... Uh, I, yeah, go ahead, please, please. Oh, I, I think one of the things that's most striking about uh, this era is the power of... Uh, where and where it relates to glam is this power of the image, you know, and this sort of um, so you know, it's not even the, it's not even the, it, it, it's not even like um, the policies as such, or, or the content of what someone like Trump says. It's just these these images that they project. Like Kanye West had this whole thing about the. The red, the red caps, didn't he? Like with yeah, 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 yeah. Like how much it mentioned this sort of weird fetish object of the of the hat, and I think I guess this idea of uh, like he seemed to respond to Trump as some kind of like father figure or something. Which is if you look <laughs> at there have been articles about you know the dreams of Trump fans, you know how they dream of him as this sort of father figure who 
came in to look after them and um, would be like this kindly father and you know so very far from what appears to be the, the reality of him <laughs> as a father and as a as a business leader and, and all the rest of it um, but yeah these hor- horrific images like the, I always think of like the the thing with the, when they came out in front of the White House and stood by the church holding the Bible with, um, or when he came out of hospital with COVID and had that whole ceremony on the standing on the balcony, tearing off his mask, you know, yeah. trying to stop not wheeze because it's like his lungs are in a terrible shape. He's trying, he's breathing very heavily, but he's trying to do this projection of erect strength. And it's all, I mean, it's all very fascist. It's also very glam. It's also very PR, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the languages of, of uh, visual languages, all come from the same place um and it's what uh, you know what a lot of um glam artists understood and lived by was was the sort of power of these these simple images um so i think that's what you know i think you know i don't know if, i don't know how seriously you take we can take bowie's thought he seemed to take a, a you know the mid-century seemed to take an unwholesome turn the combination of extreme fame cocaine the magic he was reading and i think he's also picking up on something in the culture then you know he what you're talking this all this talk about a strong hand to deal with all the the filth is exactly the same thing as the speeches that, that travis bickle in taxi driver delivers yeah. which is around the same time it's like 1976 there is this period um and then a bit later you have uh or around about the same time i think you have um the charles bronson movies where he's a vigilante. Do you know those ones? Yeah, 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 yeah. Death Wish or something, isn't it? Or something like that. You know, it's, it is like, you know, there's been this explosion of early 70s permissiveness, pornography explodes, um, sexual uh, openness in, in entertainment and films. Um, uh, pot smoking is, is semi, um, illegalized in a lot of parts of America. It's a very liberal, you know, the, the 60s is kind of happening on a mass level. And then by the mid 70s, there's this reaction. So Bowie was tuned into that, I think. Um, but also he's kind of going crazy as well. Uh, so you, you sort of had to kind of be, take it seriously, but not seriously in a way. Like, you know, he's obviously never going to be a political leader. Um, but it is interesting that those are the only virtually the only public statements he ever made in his career that had a political position. Um, and later on, he tend, you know, he does that song fashion, you know, on um, 1980, which yes. goes, he presents politics, swing to the left, swing to the right, as if they're just, you know, meaningless swings, you know, like, like fashion changes, you know, or something. So he, he I think he generally uh, was studiously apolitical, uh, but yeah, I think I think the nature of his of his fame and the fact that he had huge crowds, you know, uh, wrapped by him, made him aware of the power of, you know, the, the singer as a sort of leader, you know, a sort of a sort of Führer, you know, uh, and that so that was in his head as well at that time. Yeah, it's interesting because I mean he used the th- thunder, didn't he? The thunder in some of the concerts, the kind of uh, Nazi thunder 
I guess. That oh, you mean the lightning? The lightning. Yeah, for sorry, flash. The lightning. So just, yeah, that's a bit like a very potent image, isn't it? Yeah. You know? That them, um, I guess, a lot of you know, like Throbbing Grizzle also took a lot of this imagery. I mean, I don't know who did it before, but I guess it was at that time this kind of imagery that I guess it was made with distance, with ironic distance, and um, yeah, and, and then I, you know, but it's interesting that them after the period, you know, let's say 2016, it's like this distance was the irony changed, uh, the meaning of irony changed completely. And many, many young people kind of took these kind of symbols or these kind of representations of power for what they were. And the whole mm. context, you know, it's not, you know, you had Trump in power, you had, um, you know, like Bolsonaro, you know, you, you had, you know, almost faces uh fascist fascist figures that yeah um, like aesthetically look. aesthetically they're fascist <laughs> and that's on the level in which they're winning you know i i mean i when you when you when you see some of the things that are talked about and the language if you ever go on on the comments of a magazine like breitbart or something you hear people talking about you know executing and rounding people up and stuff like that so uh you know, I think there is a real potential of fascism there, but it seems, to, as far as we can see, it's going to be a kind of fascism of cheating, cheating at uh, electoral politics rather than, you know, hopefully rounding people up and killing them. But you know, I don't know the way things are going. Who knows? Um, uh, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's very much like an emotional fascism and an aesthetic fascism and a and, and a rhetorical fascism, a, fa a fascism, the, the rhetoric of of uh, yeah, one nation and uh, closing the borders and restoring things to how they supposedly were so much better. And yeah, it's all the rhetorical tropes of fascism uh, are present and correct. Um, it's, very, it's a very disturbing time to be alive, really. Um, and it's and so unexpected, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I found most interesting about America is that a huge way the population want a king and America's founded on not having, <laughs> you know, it's this foundational act of American existence as a, as a concept is the kicking out of the king of Britain <laughs> and we rule ourselves, but they really want a king. They actually want a dynasty. They want, they want something that, you know, there are people who would happily give Trump electoral, you know, four years and then another four years and another four years. Uh, and then give it to one of his kids, you know. Uh, this sort of dynastic tendency within American political life is very strange, you know, the, the cult of the Kennedys. And then, yeah. the, and then this weird thing now where they think, like, um, who's the Kennedy they think's still alive and he's going to come and join Trump and be the vice president? Oh, yeah, it's not Robert Kennedy. I, I, I cannot remember the name, but, yeah, the yeah. other brother, the, yeah. The, the guy who died, yeah, the, I think the guy who died, the one who died in the plane crash or something. Um yeah, he's not actually dead. He's going to come back and be <laughs> be Trump's vice president um, because, you know, forgetting all the actual po politics of the Kennedy family, which some branches of it were very, very liberal indeed, Edward Kennedy. Um, but it's through this glamour of kingliness, you know, the glamour of the political dynasty 
And somehow it makes sense in these people's deranged minds that the glamour of the Kennedys would join with the supposed glamour of the Trumps in this, <laughs> you know, ultimate American royalist <laughs> uber dynasty. You know. It's just insane. It's insane. It's, it's, it's medieval thinking. It's child thinking. Uh, and well, I don't even child thinking, I don't think. It's like insulting <laughs> to children. I don't know. It's just such a bizarre... But do you follow all the conspiracy things of QAnon and so even as a cultural product? I don't, I don't like, I haven't delved deeply into it. I, know, I have friends who explore that world and are fascinated by it. I mean, I pick up, I read articles on it. You know. Because uh, so I, I, I've got the, I know the basic uh, contours of, of um, a lot of these thinking. They're all kind of essentially emotionally the same aren't they you know bad people have taken over they're un, un, you know not only do we disagree with them they, we can't just disagree with them they have to be unspeakably bestily not even bestily like just depravedly inhuman they're eating actually eating children having sex with children trafficking children you know so you have to make your enemies beyond evil and therefore that justifies the righteous punishment you're going to impose on them. But it's, it's all different. It's depressing. It's, it's very, very crazy that something like the Capitolium event a year ago could occur. Yeah. It's insane if you think about it. You see the yeah. images. They are memes, like living memes. Every single image. I, it's actually, so weird. Uh, I know that you, not... you liked quite a lot uh, Ariel Pink. <laughs> and I guess he was present there with John Mouse. And, yeah. Uh, That was, upsetting. that was upsetting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I really like Aero Pink's music. Um, and, um, yeah, that was a, a great surprise and a disappointment that he would be there. I would have thought he'd be smarter than that. Uh, but I think it's this emotional... I mean, I can't... I shouldn't speculate, really. But I think it's this emotional identification that somehow Trump, maybe for people like Kanye, maybe for people like... Aerial Pink represents the sort of weird combination of a winner and a and a victim. Because a lot of the language of Trump uses is, um, they're all out to get me, they're evil, they're, they're thugs. He always uses the word thugs about Democrats. Democrats are thugs. Uh, these radical left Democrats are thugs. <laughs> and um, they're persecuting me. And somehow his persecution, even though he's an immensely wealthy person and, and privileged all his life and Somehow his vict supposed victimization resonates with his demographic, his core base, who feel victimized. They feel they've been cheated of something, uh, some kind of way of life where I guess what you know there were there were like good industrial jobs and and the concerns of white people were centered and you know all this kind of stuff. Now, one, you know, I've mentioned the King thing. One thing that struck me is, um, again, I haven't explored it very deeply, but I am fascinated by all these sort of incel, yeah. incel culture and, and this sort of um, pickup artist culture and, and this sort of new masculinity thing. And I was struck by the fact that there's a web, isn't there a website called something like When We Were Kings? Like that, yeah. one of these sort of return to masculinity and men on top and women grateful uh one of those sort of anti-feminist uh pro-masculinity websites because of when we were kings it's such an interesting idea like when 
what, what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. But see, Alan, the kingness, the kingliness of Trump is the guarantee or the bolster or the support system for all these micro, you know, like, yeah, 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 you wouldn't really be a king. You might be a king over your girlfriend or your wife, you know, you might be a king of the family. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very standard patriarchy, I suppose. It's not particularly profound, but as a, as a sort of slogan, I thought when we were kings is quite a interesting crystallization of it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's obviously as well the, the, the thing about insult culture. Oh, no, it's not, it's not when we were kings. It's return of kings. That's what it is. The, the return, return of kings. Of kings. Okay, return of kings, yes. When we were kings is the name of a documentary, I think about um might be about Muhammad Ali <laughs> I'm not sure uh, um, but with return of kings yeah so yeah we have been displaced from our righteous our righteous role as as, as the patriarchs on every level you know whether it's uh, yeah we want a patriarch a patriarch entertainer as our king Trump <laughs> yeah, but it's really depressing that uh, all these subcultures, like like mm. the insult or old right uh, obscure forums, are proliferating in, in a moment like very bleak moment like this with isolation, people constantly like wired yeah. into the internet, etc. And then you you see the uh, a, dec a decline in the subversive. Uh, capacity of of like new uh, genres of music, but genres of music that entail certain form of social cohesion or tribalism, or I don't know if yeah. you found recently any any sort of subversive attributes in music subcultures, or you feel that the, this progressive individualism and isolation by technological mediation is dissolving this 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 tribal attitude that you can or you could have found in, in subcultures um so you so you yeah i don't know i mean i'm not really i haven't really seen anything in, mu in music that's um super inspiring and sort of hope on that level um I think it's hard to the moment because everything's kind of suspended. So the normal, yeah. the normal ways by which music um, creates communities or energies have kind of been interrupted. Um, yeah, I don't know. Because I, I read the piece that your song wrote about micro uh, genres. Oh, right. yeah. And it's really, it's really nice, but at the same time, it makes you think about how all these micro genres uh, are trying to compete in this general attention economy, and how, yeah, you can mm. s select and produce new identities, and it's pretty much like the, yeah, this general dynamic that you can find in social media, like Instagram mm. or or whatever. So. Yeah, I was discussing it with him, and I was saying it, you know, like it's, it's uh, with Kieran, and um, it's like, you know, well, can can there really be such a thing as a genre with one artist in it, or, or even just two artists? You know, what is the what is the point at which you can really say something as a genre? And it's usually when enough people agree, you know, like there's some kind of social energy yeah. that gathers around it, so you have enough people to constitute 
fans of that genre and other artists and and uh, and um, and these sort of micro genres or micro micro genres seem to be too fleeting and too small really to to have you know if you compare it with something like hip hop which is is a huge cultural formation um, it, you know it's a long way from from that on the other hand some of the subject matter you know uh, um, in some of the, this music um, is coming from people who are trans or 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 queer or yeah uh, so they're uh, people who are fans of music often find you know a connection with it on that level so you can say it has it, it has some um, uh, yeah emancipatory yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah so you know it's like it's sort of like um, a new form of post-geographical um, neighbourhood, you know, I suppose, in a way. I mean, I, I think some of these artists do actually perform live and they have... My son's been to, like, micro-raves under under a bridge in Brooklyn. <laughs> so there are these... But it's, it's, it's sort of... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite... Um, it seems to have a fra an ability to fracture, even, you know, the fracturing of genres is going on for a while. It was going on in the 90s rave culture when it fractured into all these different tangents. But this is like a new level of speed of fracture and of, and of scale of fracture where it's like a splinter of a splinter of a splinter. Um, so yeah, how, how um, it doesn't seem to lend itself to sort of, uh, to, uh, massification and gathering of energy in a large way um, I suppose that, you know the most hopeful the most hopeful example of politics and pop in recent history would be grind for Corbyn wouldn't it that would be yeah but that actually seemed to have seemed as far as we could tell seemed to have some consequential effects on that election and I mean ultimately it didn't all went very badly with Boris Johnson being elected but there was a moment where it felt like you know there was an unprecedented coalition of of youthful support for a, what is actually a pretty moderate left-wing program but you know by the standards of, of of politics of the last 30 years quite felt pretty radical some of the things being proposed um but i suppose what interested me about i've written about this uh as someone who was like a fan of early grime and then kind of lost interest in it um but one thing that struck me was that although it had this political effect it, you, you look at the lyrics of grime and they're not socialist in their consciousness at all um yeah. it's not even that they it's not even they don't have you know lyrics about uh increasing funding to libraries or protecting the nhs which you wouldn't really expect <laughs> but they don't have it, the actual values in them are all like you know uh, life is tough you've got to struggle if you if you if you dream you can make it which it, which really actually connects to Trump because one of the things I find most fascinating about Trump is him being the um, the president of positive thinking you know like he, he his, his actual belief system which is kind of like the American religion is positive thinking you know like you know if you want something strongly enough you can get it which is something that Mark wrote about, I think. Didn't he call up, talk about magical volunteerism? 
as a term you used, this sort of idea that your own fate is entirely in your hands and if you just have enough willpower and determination, you're going to make it, you know. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the actual sort of lyrics and, and viewpoints in Grime are more on, on the lines of that sort of, you know, motivational thinking and uh, uh, work hard, you know, what about been... how hard they work, you know. Um, so, uh, oh, yeah, sorry. But, no, but so what, what I'm saying is that yeah, what happened was that there's nothing in the content of Grime that led to Grime to Corbin uh, and, ha- and then Grime to Corbin and, and the effects it seems to have had. It was entirely the sort of status as a sort of representatives of youth that someone like Stormzy had, that sort of star power and respect he had with young people that had an effect rather than any content in the actual music. And what has been the latest genre of music that you've been interested or fascinated by or that it gave you a kick or excitement made you feel excited about um well the very latest one um uh, it's not really the genre the, uh, because some the other artists are quite interesting but I, i don't so love them but really it's this group dry cleaning um that's far and away the most exciting record i've heard um in certainly in the sort of vague area of rock you know for a long long time um and it's not that it's so exciting music i think it's really good musically you know and it's really enjoyable but it's got a quite traditional kind of post-punk sound I, on my blog i said it's almost like post-punk has become like the blues you know you had this certain kind of pete hook peter hook kind of bass line you know uh you have this sort of scratchy guitar or whatever you have those formal features of post-punk now it's is codified as this quite narrow set of parameters um but really it's the lyrics and the delivery of florence shaw that i think is so um amazing and actually quite soon after sort of falling for this record and listening to it obsessively um i started thinking like ah this is almost like it relates to certain things mark fisher wrote about like the boring dystopia yeah Uh, depressive hedonism there's a lot of references in the lyrics to sort of food like little snacks and treats you give yourself to get through life um but just the utter sort of it's a very funny record but it's sort of it's kind of really sort of heartbreaking at the same time like this sort of there's a sort of sense of the emptiness of of life today and, and the disappointments and uh, and the sort of inanity and stupidity of so much of the stuff that is just the, tr- the kind of the, the sort of everyday churn of of the reality we live through um, so I thought I found it really powerful uh, in terms of actual music probably the last thing that I thought was really amazing was all this stuff um, uh, all the stuff going on in in trap using um, using auto-tune and other effects on the voice and it's sort of You know, this stuff with Kit, Kit, this guy, Kit McIntosh, wrote a really interesting book about it called Neon Screens on Repeater. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah. it's, uh, it's, rap has kind of gone beyond, you know, there are lyrics and they are, come as quite funny and strange, but really it's post language, you know, it's, it's like the voice is just pure texture and it has a very strange, 
um, subjectivity in it that's kind of different from earlier rap. It's kind of almost, they're still rapping about, you know, women and, and expensive designer commodities and, and some of those gang life as well. But they seem very kind of, and almost androgynous, like very kind of soft and melted and partly it's to do with drugs, I think, and the kind of use of pres um, prescription and, you know, drugs that are intended to be used against anxiety or depression are being used as, as drugs of abuse and drugs of intoxication. It creates this very woozy, dreamy kind of, kind of numb, numbness, like blissed out numbness. Uh, and again, I sort of related to this thing of Marx, the depressive hedonism, uh, the secret sadness of the 21st century that you wrote about in connection with Drake, you know, and, and, and Kanye West and people like that. Um, it's sort of quite a bleak view of the, you know, as a picture of where people's heads are at, it's quite a bleak picture of it. But as music, I think, it, you know, people like Migos, Playboy Carti, Future, yeah. Young Thug, but uh, thing is, many others, uh, Travis Scott, you know, just yeah. texturally. And it's always, you know, it's, you know, there is more amazingly weird music being made, uh, I'm sure, in tiny internet communities and in academia and, uh, you know, in the conceptual electronic world. But the fact that it's happening on the radio, you can turn the radio yeah. and hear this sort of, to me, as a creature of the ear of the radio, if, I, if we're driving through LA and I turn on the radio and a track like Goosebumps by Travis Scott is on the radio, it sounds like this melted radio head track almost, um, like from Kid A, um, or I don't know, some of the Migos, songs you know and it's actually on the radio it just seems so exciting that something that strange um, is part of mass culture but that really was a few years ago i think since then um i don't know what do you think what do you what excites you well i don't know the the donda album uh by kanye west donda the last oh, album right, oh, right. still is a pretty weird album is it uh, yeah i mean uh, for for mainstream uh culture but you are yeah. right this is something that actually i talked uh, once with uh and i with steve goodman about the prevalence of very avant-garde techniques uh in voice processing in yeah mainstream people yeah it, it's incredible uh i don't know do you like 100 gecks um i've heard a few things actually my my son was really into them um my son is really you know it's almost like the passing of the baton or the job okay, down yeah. the, he has that young man's hunger to find new things he's constantly chasing um new new sounds new genres so he tends to be clips of a lot of these things and some of them i like but not 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 a lot of them excite me as much as when i was turning the radio on and hearing uh you know future or something like that um uh, yeah why well, do you are you do you rate 100 gigs well i think it um it's a good representation of this extremely fragmented world with limited spam attention spam yeah and this uh huge mix of genres and lack of any sort of 
respect for the context, the specific attributes of these aesthetics mm. whatsoever. Yeah. I don't find it like I feel old for this sort of music as well. But the um, how old? How old are you? I'm 36. 36. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm 58. So uh, <laughs> yeah, you can imagine how old I feel when 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 Kieran sends me these um, these sort of uh, clips of things. I, a lot of them, I genuinely don't, I sort of don't quite see the appeal of them because they're very sort of. Uh, yeah, it's very much like yeah. You you feel like I don't know. Like you, if you listen to a lot of it, like a whole mix of it, you feel like you've drunk yeah. three red three Red Bulls or something, or you know, you feel like uh, you kind of like your nerves are shot. You know, um, it's so full of stuff going on. You know, I suppose in some ways it's interesting actually. Like one of the words they use on on this scene is glitchcore. Yeah, and that's a word that's quite an old word because it was used in around the year 2000 or so to describe Kid 606 and and um, I don't know certain other you know there was a whole bunch of sort of stuff that at that time seemed very attention span weakening and kind of crazed combi- combination of genres but this stuff is a whole other level and it's got the this sort of extreme auto tune and um, and it jumps around between genres in a really manic way so uh I find it interesting precisely for avoiding this trap of retromania mm. uh, and so uh, I see that these kids they they like Naked City or they like I don't know new metal from the 90s uh, but they have no interest whatsoever in resuscitate certain scene or something like that it's like yeah they, they address this in a sort of extremely detached way, like a color palette, or I don't know how to describe it. Absolutely, yeah. It's like yeah, there's all of history is is there for them to steal things from, and but they don't have any sense of its context really, or only a very vague sense. And they just take these sort of sounds and these signifiers. The signifiers have kind of got detached from their signifiers in a really radical way and you can just mush them all together it's totally like as you say like a palette a palette of colors um uh yeah it's interesting yeah it's, it's it is without nostalgia and it, and even when the, it does use old things uh there isn't like for instance some of the stuff that my son's played to me uh is people actually making modern day jungle okay you know? but they it's not like they've, like I doubt if any of them have done a lot of research. They probably haven't read my book or any of the other books on Jungle. <laughs> they just heard it on the on on um, on the internet. They probably found a YouTube tutorial that says, "Here's how to take a break and chop it up," uh, and they've done a version of it that's quite nice. You know, it's quite. It doesn't have any. You know, it's hard to imagine it ever being played in a club or having a social dimension of what uh, what Jungle once meant. But it sounds nice, um, and there's another artist called Pink Pantheress who's quite big, who takes a lot of her tracks involved taking old beats, you know, almost the whole of a, tr- a jungle track or a UK garage track, and then putting her own songs on them. And again, yes, yeah, it sounds really, really nice. And there might there's not, might be a little bit of nostalgia for me, but I don't think the artist is it. It feels nostalgia. They're just 
using this stuff because it's great old rhythms you can reuse. It's a bit like in the way in reggae culture, like um, in the 90s, some, you know, mostly people were doing dancehall, but sometimes they take a very old roots rhythm from the 70s and, and then put, you know, dancehall ragga kind of vocals over it. Uh, like it's kind of, um, re, you know, it's much less like, uh, it's not like quoting or referencing, it's much more like um, cannibalizing a car. You know, you take, you take an old engine out of a car and you put it in a new car or something like that. Um, just, just totally pragmatic reusing of rhythms. Yeah, and in terms, um, and do you know, for example, this label, Nega Nega Tapes? I, I've seen the name. I'm not entirely sure what it references. Is it world? Is it kind of world music or? Well, it's mixing. <laughs> it's mixing very interesting. You know, like pushing many boundaries, kind of, you know, African rhythms uh, with industrial, you know, hardcore music. Like, it, it, well, it's very varied. It's, it, there's a lot of varied music, but it's, it's a label uh, from Uganda that is uh, becoming quite big. And a lot of African artists who, you know, the production is... It's very, amazing. Very pushing, mm. you know, it's like, and this is become, it's getting quite a lot of attention. Is this connection is, uh, yeah, this doesn't make you feel by any means nostalgic or, you know, or maybe they are taking, you know, they're all, I'm thinking also of Principal Records, which has already been going for quite a lot in Lisboa. Yeah. You know, like making with Kududo something really raw and hardcore. And mm. uh, yeah, it's, this is I find this quite exciting. Uh, yeah, they are very exciting. That's indeed a good example. They have this band. Well, uh, they have many, many bands. Duma, who did a crazy mix between I don't know green core and trap or something like that last year, and then they released a seven-inch in sub pop. I think this year. Mm. And but they had sounds of sea, so very very fast and aggressive uh, music. Right. No, it's incredible. And and Duma, they are touring Europe now many days. Many. And they're on Principe, I think. No, no, no. Oh, this no, is me again. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, oh, right, well, I'll check them out then. They sound good. Yeah, and I've I seen think... the name. And I, I sort of yeah got the vague sense it was something to do with. African rhythms and and uh, are they, do they do they have anything to do with, with what's that style music called? Is it Gakwam or something or uh, Well, that's that's in South Africa. I don't know if they have you know. Uh, I don't know if they have some South Af like Mung uh, artists, but um, but I think they their connections. I think people they're connecting quite a lot. Uh, you know, from what I heard. It's, it's like bringing a lot of people together. I remember one artist is already quite, you know, there the, was a duo called Faka that right. I think they had like a, you know, a production or close to. Is that uh, the correct pronunciation? That's that what I heard. Really. That's what I heard. <laughs> Sorry. All right. yeah. It's a good sound. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, That that was a band that I was I don't know if they're still active but I saw them live and they blew me away like they had a kind of queer 
style over, you know, very performative and so powerful. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, one of the best things that I've seen, but that was like already five years ago. Um, right. Yeah. And I guess another figure that I found very interesting is Pink Sifu. Um, Pink Sifu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Miguel has seen him live. Yeah, he's from uh, Philadelphia. No? Right. He's from Philadelphia, right? Or I am wrong. I, I don't I, remember. I don't But he has a lot of records that he started maybe, I don't know, in 2015, 14. And then uh, with Black Lives Matter, he did uh, this record called Negro that is so, uh, you know, it's like doing punk, but uh, it's like taking this idea from black metal of necro music, you know, like necro recording. It's recorded so, so raw and it's, uh, uh, it really f fits the mood. But life is um, is like sometimes uh, uh, bad brains, but other times as well, very like kind of orchestra, free jazz, chaos. It's very interesting. But very, he does very a, lot, a lot of rap, you know, like yeah. a really, really yeah. a lot of rap. And uh, yeah, that's a figure that kind of blew me, blew me away for sure. Certainly, yeah. I guess for me, you know, it's been... Yeah, people the, in the last years, people like Sino Amobi, uh, Matana Roberts, Moore Mother, has been people who dealt with history, their history, their fucked up history, you know, like, and mm. there is no, obviously there is no melancholy nostalgia or anything. It's just like hardcore confrontation with this fucked up history and then propelling it into the present. And mm. obviously there is a present that is extremely urgent and, you know, with Black Lives Matter. And mm. it's, um, yeah, it's the music that I've, you know, felt more, well, I don't know, uh, urgent, but also sophisticated uh, mm. and very interesting ways of, yeah, especially dealing with, time and history you know i mean more mm. modern you know comes from this group called black quantum futurism in which they apply a kind of idea of you know african ideas of time but also in regards to afrofuturism and you know ideas that come from quantum mechanics and how to play around with time and for the lyrics there it just kind of blows you away the way that They, they take you into places and they play with different temporalities that you are simply not used to and and, 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 and it's uh, making something quite unique, certainly non-nostalgic. Uh, it's interesting because uh, actually they are very influenced by Kodo. So and the Otolith group. Jojo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So he's the... Interesting. Yeah. So, so you were just talking about Pink, pink Sifu, did you say it was the name? Uh, uh, pink uh, Sifu. Sifu. Uh, Sifu. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, very interesting. Oh, uh, I'll have to check them out. Uh, yeah, very powerful. And uh, and in terms of writing, because I was right, uh, reading your foreword to Marx Fischer's uh, K-Punk uh, companion, and mm. it's very touching you you really feel that there was something going on at that time early 2000s with the blogosphere that it really kicked something 
uh, up and that you, you know, what you would say that you would wake up in the morning to see what the other person has written. And, and Robin was also talking about this um, today, which sounds like something crucial and urgent was happening every day in terms of discussion. And, um, and I was obviously wondering if, if you get similar feeling in terms of music writing today somewhere, or if, if, if there is some kind of exciting writing today that you could maybe think of? Um, <laughs> uh, not really. I think probably where it's happening is probably in books more. I don't know. I mean, like, you know, yeah. there were two books, actually both on repeater last, last year that really excited me. One was the one I mentioned, ne Neon Screams by Kit McIntosh. And then the other one was by Leslie Chow called uh, Your History. Um, and they're both very sort of original, both very enjoyable, and both short as well. So it's just, <laughs> as someone who writes these enormous long books, like 600 pages, I think was the last one, I was, I was impressed that both books were like really short, but bursts of, of excitement about music. Um, uh, and there's probably other ones that I'm not thinking of that where people are doing the most interesting writing around is within this book, within book format. Um, um, I don't know. I mean, it's not really a magazine that I look to regularly. You know, it's just, you know, it's just sort of names that pop up. Some of them are very old, reliable names. I don't know. I don't want to say very old. I mean, they've been around a while. Like, you know, you read Philip Sherman on on um, a new burial record and it's um really good and uh interesting and um but then there's i don't know there's probably younger names as well that um crop up regularly but I'm, there's, there's not really a publication where um where i sort of check every day or you know to see what's going on there um I, yeah there, i mean i if the blogs there are still blogs and there are still people who blog quite actively but there isn't you know like someone like um xenogothic yeah uh, blogs but, but maybe incredible. he's the only one that he has like an incredible blog that you can expect something yeah like very very long in-depth essays that are sort of like seem to have been written uh very quickly but like read like something that someone's spent months writing you know <laughs> Um, and um, so that is very energetic, but there isn't, um, in the old days, there was the sort of energy of that level spread across, you know, 20, 20 blogs that were all in communication with each other. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a bit of a shame. I do miss that. I mean, I feel like a lot of that energy got pulled into uh Facebook and Twitter, so and podcasts, no, as well. Podcasts, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, podcasts. I never quite, you know, uh, I never quite got with the podcast program, but you know, I appear on them and I and I do listen to them, and yeah, that seems to be where um, where a lot of the sort of energies 
Yeah, the problem is that most of it, I don't listen to a lot of music podcasts, but generally they are like wide of like hot takes, etc. But yeah, it's uh, obviously a lot of journalism now is on there. But the problem is as well that this sort of decline of the music as uh, a a form of art that consolidates in this thing so-called album is disappearing Mm -hmm. so unless you are trying to react to instagram stories and singles Mm -hmm. like really immediate feedback um i don't know what what do you think about this this general decline of of album and this post album era do you have are you concerned or you don't mind or um, I must admit, I find it hard to listen to a whole album myself. Uh, I, it's almost like a sort of um, discipline of listening that has been weakened. Um, when it happens, when 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 you get an album that you want to play over and over again and listen to many many times, it's a really great feeling for me. Like dry cleaning was one. Um, um, I don't know. Every every year, there's a bunch of albums, just a few albums, really, that, that had that effect where you want to play them over and over again. Um, but often, I find with listening to records that I sort of check them out, uh, and it's almost like ticking a you know ticking a, a name on a list. You know, hmm. I've done that, um, and um, and it's whether you go back to it, I suppose, is the thing. But it, it, I mean, there seems. It, I think there seems to be a tendency for people to make things that resemble albums in the sense, in the, in the classic vinyl sense, like you know that that they're like forty to fifty minutes long. You know, you don't seem to get quite so many people doing these enormously long. There was a period when when the CD was quite a new invention, when people would feel like they had to fill it up, so they do seventy minute long albums, <laughs> and um, and in rap there was a tendency. To, to sort of uh, do skits and, and kind of things to pad them out. That was a trend for actually a long time ago, really, and not relevant anymore. But then, I don't know, some some point in the 2000s, people seemed to start deliberately making shorter albums that resembled the length of a vinyl album. Like Vampire Weekend put out a record that was like, their first record was like 36 minutes long or something, 37 minutes long. And that was that was wonderfully refreshing because that's the sort of seems to be about the right length. Yeah, I'll unless it has to be like a really sprawling, enormous work, and, and each track is twenty five minutes long or something. There's definitely something about that length of like half an hour to forty five minutes that is. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe it's only people who grew up with vinyl albums that feel that way. I don't know. Maybe maybe my son's generation doesn't have that that temporal thing, but it just feels to me like that's the right length. For an album that you're going to digest, and and um, uh, so yeah, records that are like that, sort of the, the dry cleaning one is like that. It only has nine songs, I think, or something like that, on it, ten maybe. Um, it's like a good. It's a, it makes for a stronger statement, I think. It encourages people to leave out lesser tracks or go for a more cohesive mood. Um, 
I don't know. It seems to be something that people, there still seems to be like within criticism, there still seems to be this interest in masterpieces and like the, yeah. the masterpiece album seems to be a, yeah, a demand within critics and a certain kind of music fan. But in practice, I personally am much more like uh, track oriented. I think. Yeah. I often I find there's like, you know, one really amazing tune on a record that that's the one I fixate on and I go back to, but like the rest of it, the whole work of it, may <laughs> not have that appeal. May I, may I ask, what are, how are your uh, listening habits? Like, how do you actually, you know, how you encounter a piece of audio? Or what, you know, do you have like certain ways of listening or ritual? Well, um, or? It's it, uh, practically speaking, a lot of it has become streaming, just because it's so easy. Streaming or checking things out on YouTube, sometimes Bandcamp, and, and things like that. But yeah, a lot of the time it's streaming. Um, um, I have done writing for Tidal. Some of the things I've yeah. most enjoyed writing have been for Tidal, and so that's they give you a subscription, and it's a really useful thing to have. Um, You know, I think I suppose we're all supposed to be boycotting Spotify now. I did use yeah. Spotify a bit, uh, despite the adverts. Um, but, this, is, um, this is crazy. What do you think about this? The, the the thing about the Spotify because now it should be extremely clear for everyone that they are not interested in, in music, no? Because in this sort of weird competition between Neil Young and Joe Rogan, they obviously mm. decided that. They are content providers, but they are not content providers of music. Yeah, yeah. And so, so what? So a lot of their of their stuff now is is like podcasts and programs and things like non-musical. I don't use it either, no. But it, as a statement, no, deciding mm. that okay, they are fine with uh, Nail Down opting out is like it's a huge statement, no. It is, and it seems to really backfired. I have, I have to confess, I haven't really been following the story except just that you know they pulled all his music off the site, which is a, which is like a huge uh, insult, isn't it? Really, <laughs> it's a huge affront to. And he said, even if you don't actively follow Neil Young's music, like I, I, I don't. He's someone that I sort of have this great respect for based on just a few records, really, like Zuma and Rust Never Sleeps and a few others. Yeah. Um, and he's an amazing, amazing live performer I saw once. Um, but yeah, I'm not actually, I haven't actually followed his work for decades, really, but he's a, such a venerable figure and seems to have integrity and all these things. As far as I know, he's a good person. So it's like a, You know, but just as a figure in rock, you know, he's this sort of yeah, yeah. figure of integrity. Uh, it's a huge affront. And the other guy me. is a charlatan. He's like, you are removing yeah. a, a musician yeah. that it's history of the 20th century and you are living there a charlatan. It's insane. Yeah. It is chilling, I suppose. And is it just entirely based on the calculus of the number of streams they get? I, I mean, they paid millions, no, for Joe Rogan. I think they right. when they hired him, but it's 
it's a scary for a streaming as well because how music depends on certain infrastructure that now is yeah it has potentially shapes the music relation to larger anti-democratic tendencies then depends on power structures that we have no clue about how do they work is is it's really scary no because actually my my question about the post post album era is that some artists like for example i was thinking about rosalia and other mainstream urban artists they see that they can make a career out of um yeah sporadic singles videos collaborations and this sort of cycle okay you do something with fashion industry you do something for i don't know a video game and then you release a music video and so but the album as such as the result of your artistry is declining somehow and i don't know for how long we are able to carry this sort of corpse from the yeah 20th century like this idea of physical even though we have this huge revival and problem with buying this idea of well I was, I was going to say just adding going back to the how i listen to things um uh although I, practically speaking it's a lot of it is either streaming or you know pub some pr people do still send me like zipped files of things i used to like that it's not a very satisfying way of listening and I actually recently like about three weeks ago as you can see i actually moved my stereo which had been in the main living room into this office and the goal is is to uh to get back into the habit of listening to vinyl um and um and, and make use of this collection you know this co large collection of vinyl that i've accrued through being a fan and also you know at certain points i would be sent a lot of vinyl when i was first a music writer so it's all sitting there it's been sitting there for years hardly used um so and i've always avant-garde electronic music um that they want to listen to on vinyl so i've moved it in here um so far it only, it's only worked if i like just decide to display vinyl all day but like if if i try and go back and forth streaming and, and the internet wins and then that's a very unsatisfying way of listening because i find that i'm often um i'm often like distracted by something else it might even be looking for another piece of music related to something i'm writing about or that i'm teaching about so I'll, i'll be using the pause a lot so you you kind of you're constantly stopping what you're listening to to hear something else that's related to what you're actually working on you know and it's a very choppy unmusical way of listening to music or at least with vinyl it's so annoying it's not that annoying but it's slightly more annoying and physical to get up and lift the needle up but you tend to let it roll all the way through so and i think that's a better way of listening to music um i don't really like streaming but it's it is so um insidiously convenient You can't help using it, I find. Um, so it's a it's sort of crazy situation because I have like, you know, a lot of vinyl, a lot of CDs. I have a lot of tapes, actually. Sometimes I like to get tapes out, cassettes out and uh, play them. Something about the format. 
even the sound is kind of nice i think um, yeah. what do you guys use yeah i no, i agree with you is uh i also have the three you know i have a stereo with all the you know with cassette cd and vinyl actually cd is quite enjoyable you know because it's in between you know like you can just like play it and it plays you know all the way obviously you don't get the warmth and the uh, they sound pretty good though really i think for most people unless you're a real hi-fi you know someone spending thousands of dollars on yeah. your hi-fi for most people cd is a better sound and um and yeah you can let it roll through but you can also reconfigure it to like the exact yeah. tracks you like you know yeah, I think you know. I think CDs have quite a lot going for them. I think they actually sound better than ever. Like judging by, well, judging by reissues. Uh, yeah, in fact, you know. I guess now with uh, because you know vinyl is now taking a year to produce. So I think people are getting back into CDs and discovering. Oh mm. wow, it's actually quite cheap to produce a. You know, they don't oh, have the yeah. glamour that they had, but uh, once they had, and it's not vinyl, but uh, it's practical. Yeah, it's yeah. not such a bad format doesn't have the glamour i don't think i don't think that's going to be a glamour of, of box sets or you know all the different ways whether it's you know the plastic case that gets cracked or chipped or it's the cardboard things which seem like nicer but they tend to get worn out around the edges and start to look kind of shabby and crap um it is never going to have the glamour of, of uh, something like this this is actually a reissue yeah, that's not the not the real thing, but you know. Uh, oh, here's another one, another reissue. Uh, Hawkwind, Space Ritual, and then I have all these sort of electronic things, obscure electronic records that, like this one by um, Ralph Lundston, the Swedish. You are listening to a lot of early electronic and music concrete stuff, no? Yeah, it's sort of become this weird. Um, obsession i don't know why there's something about that era that i want to say it's glamorous but it's got a kind of romance i suppose the word. Yeah, it's kind of romance somehow you know these people um very very excitedly trying to break into a new frontier of music hmm. confident you know confident that in the future everyone will listen to this kind of music um they didn't foresee that you know there would be this return back to orchestras and and uh and things like that um tonality um and you know then you see the images of you know the studio complexes with all their computers and you know it looks like a space station and sometimes the people um, are quite formally dressed you know you see them <laughs> with their ties and suits uh but then there's also this stuff that in the 70s that's they tend to have long hair and look more like hippies um you know I, i'm I just find an endless interest in it. The fact that it was so widespread and that almost, you know, all these different countries, you know, there's this, all this amazing Latin American music concrete, um, uh, Poland, you know, these countries like Poland are like major players. Um, all this interesting stuff is happening. I got very interested in experimental animation, uh, like sort of before digital. Mm -hmm. Um, and quite often there's a connection between, um, like say in Poland, I, I can't pronounce the name of the 
it's a state-run thing, obviously, studio something something. But like, they're doing all this weird, really weird, artistically experimental, kind of disturbing or grotesque animation. But then they also get like, um, Katowski, I can't remember all the names. All these bogus law Schieffer, I think is another one. Um, all these people who were like music concrete guys do the soundtracks to these really weird, creepy <laughs> animations out of um, Poland and Czechoslovakia. Um, and so I find that connection really fascinating as well. Um, yeah, no, but there's just an endless, there's more and more of it. Yeah, and there's all that, but it's, it's very interesting how many female electronic Solo, experimental people there were, and um, Pauline Oliveris is like a really famous one, but there's like many, many quite yeah, obscure yeah. ones. Maybe only did a handful of things that ever got on record. You know, you look them up, and and they have a long list of compositions, but maybe one one or two pieces got on like a, a compilation of stuff that came out on a on a label with a title like you know electronic music and some and i don't know it's you know a very austere sort of title do you know uh, robert uh, this album that actually it was your present matching uh, roberta settles isolation no i don't know that one ah you will you will love it yeah we'll right. send you, what's we'll the name of the artist roberta settles um she was oh you, no yes i do yes i have come across that yes exactly she's someone who I found on the internet and and there's only a few pieces right but like didn't she go on to design shoes or something yeah i was living in stockholm she was living in stockholm she's american and right. in gamla stand she had this uh, it's not just shoes it's sandals sandals oh that's specific yeah 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 and i was going there mm. and see if i could meet her and then she died i oh. mean i i played in the in the homage concert which was yeah, I guess yeah. a highlight in my life. But uh, see, that record, in memoriam to Rick and Meinhof, uh, and yeah, it's a very interesting record. There was a record label run by the state, but like the avant-garde, you know, maybe the studio, maybe there is this amazing studio in Stockholm called EMS. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and there was this label that it was a state run, but like by the kind of avant-garde, you know, I guess, people maybe connected to tech sound tech sound and free jazz and things like that they invite her to do the record mm. but then because of the title and i guess maybe also the artwork they said no 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 it's too radical too <laughs> not so, so is that been reissued has it and then no no in fact no she did the she put it out herself right. crazy in music the label and it's the best coolest uh record you know, with the cover, the plastic, everything is just like the coolest in, I guess, <laughs> 80s. I've not seen that one. I've seen, I heard some other things. I have that. it here, but I won't find it. But otherwise, <laughs> but it's like, like the sleeve has the blood in the in the plastic uh, sleeve, and then the album has these images. No, Fulrike Meinhof from the newspaper. Uh, yeah, with text and everything. Is and then the record is super ultra sophisticated, minimal. You know, I mean, it's wow. like pre-Bernard Gunther, you know, super, super quiet, but precise electronic music. You know, one of the best records, uh, maybe the coolest record that I, I can think of. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got to check that out. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to be endless. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's just a weird obsession that I've pursued. Um, I don't know. I'm less interested in what's coming out of the musical academy today. I don't know why. There's something about the sound of this early stuff, the kind of reverbs they used, and and um, the str- I think you can hear more struggle somehow with the technology to achieve the results. I don't know why that should matter. I don't know why. Why should it matter that you have to struggle? <laughs> I don't know. I, f- I feel like it's just something you can sense uh, sort of monumental, a monumental ambition with, with, with when people were struggling, like cutting up little bits of tape and sticking them together and it taking a month or something to make a track. Whereas nowadays you can just move things around very, very easily and uh, create similar kind of weirdness, weird constructions of sound. But there seems to be, uh, you seem to be able to hear the facility of digital culture in it and it doesn't quite have but then again you know i am my interest used to have a sort of cutoff point and then it's gradually creeping into the 80s and 90s and the early days of digital when it was it was quite clunky there's a kind of clunky early digital sound Mm. which you know the pop music version of that would be like the art of noise where um they had to use very very short samples you know like a sample is like one second long or or 1.2 seconds long, I think was there. So they have a whole aesthetic built of these stabby sounds, you know, and, and uh, so you can, in, in experimental music, using digital, early digital technology in the 80s and 90s, you, could, you, you have a sort of similar feeling of struggle against those limitations that becomes appealing. In fact, I'm but, thinking, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, please go no, ahead. Go I, I mean, suppose it's an odd way to, to react to music. Uh, it's almost like a kind of Puritan aesthetic, yep. a Protestant work aesthetic or something like they had, they really struggled. It was hard for them, but I think that I think it comes through in some way in the well, same way, like a music where, where, where there's a real drummer sweating, you know, yeah. it, it may not be as impressive as some beats you can program, but it has a certain quality that makes it different, not necessarily superior, but definitely, you, feel, you hear the exertion, you hear the band, you know, physically exerting themselves to make the music. Yeah, I was thinking of the, you know, because the, while reading, you know, the your foreword to Mark Pieces, I discovered Degeneration, the group that he had, uh, yeah. the record, uh, Entropy in the UK, and I could really feel like they were pushing with the samplers, you know, what they could do and start to do the breakbeat, yeah. you know, Manchester, but like, it's like a very sophisticated Manchester type of music with a great, great samples. But you could feel that they were trying to push, <laughs> do something with yeah. it. You do something with sound, do kind of, um, but, you know, like I was trying to think of the tension that you were describing in regards to what concrete music was doing to music and like the way that it was tearing it apart and you know yeah. there was a contrast to I may perhaps with mainstream music it's like really offering a new uh, approach in terms of structural music uh, that will demand a new perception in what we you know music will mean and 
it was at the same time happening when music had the power to subjectify young people in ways that maybe never before in history had because obviously the record you know uh, history is quite short and and I think both of those two things the capacity from to structurally push music around and that capacity for music to have a strong impact in young people both have obviously you know dissipated and uh, mm -hmm. and I think maybe for you more than us uh, just because you were a bit younger and perhaps you were at the peak of that moment of the capacity for mm. for music to really have a strong impact on young people and make them, you know, as, you know, maybe for you, but like what Robin was saying, that he started to have an interest in philosophy because of music and, you know, like that music had that potential to shape people, people's, young people's uh, desires, uh, Mm. ways of thinking, uh, ways of dressing, mm. and I think that is really changing, or it's not, it doesn't have, I mean, certainly with fashion and everything, yes, it says what people, but I, don't, I, I think that capacity to change people, young people's uh, perception and, you know, have such a star, uh, a strong role in their life, I think that's changing. Mm. Yeah, I often felt, well, not often, but I've increasingly felt like, you know, um, very much aware that sort of my whole framework of thinking about music is, comes from the 60s, really. <laughs> um, and that's why I was kind of interested in the fact that Mark Fisher kind of was drifting back through time in his later writing and getting into people like Mark Kuser and, and talking about the Beatles, <laughs> like a, he, in this... Um, in the post-capitalist desire that I'm reading right now, he sort of brings up the Beatles as sort of living this dream life that that everyone should live uh, because they could just do exactly what they wanted. But they, as they got more and more famous and powerful and wealthy, they got more and more experimental. He held, and he holds it up as this ideal of life. Of course, it's hard to imagine how most people could live like the Beatles, but yeah, yeah, the Beatles, uh, certainly I think, yeah, represented for, youth a sort of uh, the, the the band itself the idea of the band of this group of people is like a little microcosm of some kind of collectivity i think um uh, some ideal way of living where you know work is play and play is work you know i think is is that's a very 60s idea i suppose um but yeah even you know like punk and post-punk are obviously still have a relationship with the 60s and then even when you get to like rave, I think the part of it, rave I was most interested in did not really particularly have any relationship with the 60s. But like, you know, the initially people talked about the second summer of love and mm. you, even the word, using the word rave, is a, the word rave is a, is a sort of word that was used in the 60s. Pink Floyd would have an all night rave. People talk, there was a youth magazine called Rave. Um, people talked about ravers, like people who were just really wild dancers. Um, so, yeah, but all of that feels like, I think probably for young people now, that all feels like a long time ago, I should imagine, and very hard to reconstruct and relate to what they're doing now. I'm, I'm teaching at the moment, and a lot of the, the courses I do draw on stuff from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and I'm 
uh, and although I'm doing my best to reconstruct the, the, the situation that these ideas emerge from and these musics and, the, and their utopianism, I'm aware that it must seem like a really long time ago to a lot of these students who were born after the year 2000. <laughs> yeah. some, some of them were. Some of them would have been born round about, I don't know, 19, late 90s. But yeah, most of them are like, you know, entirely 21st century people and the conditions don't apply. And uh, But I think, you know, I think clearly music does have some role in shaping um, consciousness. I mean, particularly with what's going on with gender and sexuality. I think, you know, there's a lot of um, music that relates to do with that and like uh, sort of has a kind of emo-ish kind of quality is very much um, dealing with pain and uh, and uh, and loneliness and uh, confusion and stuff in the way that indie music has before. Um, so it's, it's not that it doesn't have, um, you know, and it's not that people don't pay attention to what singers say or their public statements or their, uh, you know, their allegiances, you know, and the stands they make. People still set great store. Sorry to, yeah, I, it just came, another thought came to mind in order to complement. Yes, but I guess the potential for our revolution is too much, but for um, change society, that has disappeared because in the 60s yeah. it had the potential and it was transforming, you know, many of the values and it was, uh, and, but at the same time there was the possibility of something happening that it could be otherwise, you know, maybe 68 they started to break that dream, but yeah. the potential that, you know, uh, there could be a future, a very different type of future that in the 60s was obviously available and then that has gone down the drain and now it's not surprising that you are describing this uh, music with the term uh, depressive hedonism I think it was uh, you know like mm. that there is because there is this what you know Mark Fisher would call capitalist realism which I don't th I think it's a very problematic term you know because it's totalizing you know uh, it's, it's almost like ontologizing capital the power of capitalism which mm. you know it's not it's something that we're just reproducing, but the possibility of thinking that life could be otherwise, that it could be, you know, that mm. definitely has changed and made the um, potentiality of music to be, to have a very different role. You know, while previously it did change society, it did change, you know, and it did maybe offer a point towards a different type mm. of reality. Now that has certainly dissipated and it's like you are in the trap and let's see how you deal you know with the trap that we are in interestingly mm. enough you know the trap is the music yeah. that you are you know that is describing maybe some of these feelings it's yeah. so appropriate the word trap isn't it that, uh, yeah it's one of the most popular globally popular forms of music i did a piece for the face a few years ago that was about the internet i think i even worked out with something like trap internationally like um, deliberately playing off the associations of the word internationally but like you know the fact that there are people making trap in slovenia in in, in uh you know all around the world there's forms of trap music um and they all have the same 
the same tent, the same bleak view of life really is at the root of them. Yeah. Um, talking the the long life of the Beatles, though, I was very struck that Ray Strummer did this record called Black Beatles. Again, that idea of the Beatles as this somehow representing this perfect existence uh, and um, you know a life we'd all like to live the, the, you know and they they're boasting very humorously and touchingly that they have attained that level of life's just a groove you know so I think it's just something like there's a line about you know I'm I'm like a young man living like an old geezer like like a, a like a really wealthy person unfortunately Ray Sherman also did a song called Up Like Trump. This is before Trump was elected, but, you know, where <laughs> Trump is sort of their idea of, a, you know, a great life, living like Trump, you know. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, it's different kind of messages coming from the same thing. But um, what was I going to say? I had something to say that was related to this. Um, oh, it's gone. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I just, I suppose the question, you know, is the sort of big question is whether it was all an illusion or whether it was actually there really was this moment when, when pop music had, you know, certainly I think it felt at the time that there was this explosion of youth energy that was initially just this raw demand for fun and excitement and and uh, which was like early rock and roll in the early 60s and then it achieves consciousness of itself and then the, yeah the, the Beatles and particularly John Lennon go through all the different stages that they have the you know the attempt to leave western western consciousness by exploring drugs and mysticism then uh, then he gets into politics and, and does you know all these really strong statements and imagine is a very strong lyrical statement of another another way of life is possible um there's a famous interview with uh is it red dwarf or like with tarik ali like where lennon and yoko talk about revolution and the workers live in a dream and and all this kind of stuff he's wearing a black beret part of the people and then it all collapses back into private life and the marriage and this idea that i think yoko said something like um, if you, I don't know what it was, but it's basically you know we, we can make heaven on earth, but only between the two of us and our kids, you know, oh, yeah. and our and our inordinate wealth, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's this collapse into just the yeah. Well, the last album is called Double Fantasy, isn't it? Which is sort of like you know the return to a very privatized hope, you know. So the whole trajectory of it is sort of in there. You can see a similar trajectory with Sly, the family stone. Like you could say there's all this hope and unity and crossing racial boundaries uh, with the early Sly Stone music. And then there's a riot going on. It's kind of like a blueprint for hip hop, really. It's where it's where the beginnings of the next phase of black music and, and the beginnings of hip hop really kind of could be said to start from at least the, the consciousness in that record, which is very... Uh, bleak consciousness um and then you know yeah so so there's all these sort of moves are sort of re recapitulated slightly different ways over the ensuing decades rave music is sort of like this yeah politics of joy and community and 
then it takes a turn to the dark and becomes much more gritty and and there's a riot going on like you know with with jungle um, um and sort of reformulations of the same same material the same impasses i guess are, are sort of confronted and evaded and reconfigured uh, over and over again through the history of music there is certain elements that makes certain musics at particular time exciting there is something that is doing uh yeah. and i just wanted to ask you what do you think these are what what are the, con the related kind of elements or connections that makes certain music interesting you know what are those things that then dissipate and then maybe stops having that kind of edge what you know what is what it brings uh, these either scenes or groups or musicians that edge what constitutes what it makes that interesting vis-a-vis -vis the time that they were done oh that's a big question um i i don't know i mean i think i i tend to this sort of i don't know if this is the right use of the word dialectical but you know there's a feel like with music like um there's almost like a kind of corrective mechanism within it like you know it go a certain path and pursue it and then it becomes a dead end and then people realize that something was missing and not maybe not even consciously but it's like realize that but the sort of like something dr drives them in a completely different direction um so i'm trying to think of a good example well like with you know say with post-punk like post-punk comes out of punk and it's presenting the world in um you know stripping the romance out of what of, of the world in a sense in an important sense it's kind of no fun music you know the message of it is no fun even though like say when the sex pistols cover no fun by the stooges it's the most exciting you know yeah <laughs> stampeding music and they make no fun sound like fun but i suppose that's the the trick of punk that it's um yeah it's dealing with all this negative stuff but somehow it's affirmative uh, even as it negates um and then postpone develops that and you have the existential despair of uh an agony of joy division or more political kind of uh worry anxiety guilt uh represented by a group like the pop group um but at a certain point it feels like you know the music's just become has lost touch with some element of pop music which actually is fun sexuality enjoyment and then you have this sort of phase of a return to pop um and um i don't know similar things you can track in the development of of dance music where there's a kind of drive to sort of make the rhythms more and more challenging and more and more um pushing at the edge of being non not groovy it's like this put with something like jungle it's like testing your 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 ability to dance to it uh but then it gets too then music gets too uh, punishing or too difficult and then there's a sort of switch back to more hedonistic you know house music kind of grooves or a simpler kind of drum and bass rhythm that is actually easier to dance to so Uh, I just tend to see it sort of going through these phases um, 
and then it corrects itself. And so, so you know, the, the way it works is like making, you know, making a record that sounds like Joy Division in 1979 is like the most amazing, crucial thing. But to do the same record in 1983, it doesn't have the same meaning. It's actually a kind of boring thing to do. I don't want to name any particular groups who are doing it, but <laughs> it's mean. But, you know, there were a lot of people who missed that, you know, and Joy Division themselves have moved on to do New Order, make danceable music, still having a certain sadness or emotional content anyway that related to Joy Division, but essentially really good danceable club music. Um, whereas other groups were still sounding like unknown places or whatever and it's no longer you know so it's the actual there's something about the the, a record that is timely in its moment can then become a classic you know so it still has the same power it's not that it becomes outmoded but the actual procedure of making that record becomes outmoded you know Um, or not as interesting a thing to do you know which is why I say you know um yeah, at a certain point, grunge was like a really powerful statement. And it, when it broke into the mainstream, that was really exciting. And then, you know, by the time of 1996, and I don't know, the Foo Fighters or whatever, it's just doesn't have the, the, the same sound, doesn't have the same impact or meaning, you know. So it's sort of, it's a sort of historical sense of music. But, you know, at the same time, um, I think in any great music, there's something that always works. I think that's one of the things, it's just the things about music is you can, you can put it on decades later and there's something in it that you can just reactivate and it has this effect on you, just like a, a drug or something, right? Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't want to say timeless because we're, we're, we're talking about a fairly uh, short, brief of span of time in the history of humanity and, and, and quite likely in 500 years it'll be incomprehensible. But, in, at least within our lifetimes, there's a sort of timeless or time-defying quality to most music that's good that you can just dip into it, you know, and uh, whatever is, you know, there's some things going on in music that are sort of aren't go beyond the history that made them, if you know what I mean. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, like if you put like on, um, if you put on an Al Green record or I don't know, uh, like if you put on yeah, if you put on Dance to the Music by Sly Stone, um, and you happen to have read a book about Sly Stone or read Grill Marcus on Sly Stone, if it will enrich your understanding of what Sly Stone and Stein the Family Stone meant at that time or ever. But on a certain level, Dance to the Music is like a fantastic machine, you know. Like you just turn it on and your mood just immediately elevates. And you know, if you have aware of history and you know what the meaning of a multiracial group that had men and women in the same band and the way each, the meaning of each singer taking, each member of the band takes a turn to sing, you know, a line and the democracy of it and all that. You can read all that, but just purely a sound. Um, it's like, yeah, it's just a, an endlessly effective machine for elevating your mood beyond any of the, the interesting thing about that song is, well, which relates to this idea of, of politics and pop is like, there's no, there's no, virtually no lyrical content in dance to the music. Yet there's no doubt that it's a political event. You know, it's the political event, just the fact of it, and the lineup, the composition of the band, and the joy in it, and the shout in it, the shout of joy in it. 
uh, is enormously socially, politically resonant at that time. Um, but the actual lyrics have almost zero content. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to add some bottom so people so it's easier for people to move their feet. I think it's one line, and the chorus is dance to the music. <laughs> so it's not you know the power of it is not in the it's the power of it is in the performance uh, as opposed to or the music rather than in the 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 words the text which i think is the case with a lot of a lot of music historically isn't it it's not this the, the, it's not necessarily profound on a verbal level yeah it's something in the singing something in the uh, in the energy that's created um, i was rereading retromania and this passage in which you talk about uh, collecting Pokemon cards with your song. <laughs> and I was thinking about this in the current context of the NFTs. Oh, right. <laughs> and how these kids, maybe not your song, no, but many kids that they went through Pokemon, now they are being exposed to NFTs and so And this idea of uh, collecting objects and you mentioned Benjamin and it's it's very interesting no how yeah digital uh, not mechanical reproduction but digital mm. reproduction now is gonna play a whole new game with the whole thing of the metaverse etc and all mm. these like young people are being exposed to a commodity that it's very very strange I I haven't really read much or thought much about nfts um so but just sort of a na naively it seems like some it's the naive comment like the seems like it's something that feels like an, an extension of baudrillard's thinking right about value yeah, like yeah, value yeah. floating free of solid form symbolic value so this is like a sort of iconicity without the actual icon Uh, so yeah, it does have a relationship to Benjamin's ideas. Like that somehow, somehow you're buying a stake in something uh, just purely on its reputational associations, right? And it's it's all it's aura as in terms of um, knowledge and and uh, hipness and you know all these things, all these intangible things that are are a big part of of how uh, the economy and the culture work anyway. But this is like a sort of ab ab ultimate abstraction of it. Is that, was that fair? Is that, I mean, yeah, that's yeah, a very yeah. obvious comment. No, so no. I, yeah, um, it's mystifying to me. Like I, I, I can't understand it. Uh, I can't, I can't understand how you can invest. Is it, is it like a form of investment? Sort of an investment, isn't it? Like, it's like, it's yeah. like sort of like, but rather than own the painting, as an investment you're owning a kind of share in a idea i don't know I, I, it's 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 very confusing to me and i don't i don't it's, well yeah it's this idea of creating like digital scarcity so right. Yeah. oh right interesting ah, that's okay. like a limit a limited edition print but without the print yeah exactly 
Right. Sorry? But, but it's not, I mean, I thought, it, you know, what is just unique is the inscription in the blockchain, but yeah. can, the, the thing can be totally reproduced and... Yeah, it can be. Yeah, yeah. Because there is... People keep it, uh, so... Or the, yeah, I guess that's open, right? Uh, well, yeah, that depends, but there is this whole fuss about this... Uh, DAO organization that apparently they bought for two million dollars the Jodorowsky uh, Bible for the project of Dune, and they thought that they uh, were going to be able to reproduce this digitally with this NFT uh, mindset, and obviously this is not the case because you have no rights to use Moebius paintings whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, when you buy the NFT, the only thing that you buy is the, the this little piece of the protocol, and that's mm. all. It's, but it's yeah, it's the very production of digital scarcity. So it's like trading cards, but without the card. But mm. but obviously you can't speculate with this, no? and it's uh, it's very disturbing because for kids it's like. Uh, yeah, this idea of surprise, etc. Like they are going to release a new. It's very weird. Mm. I mean, very, very weird. Without going into the economical analysis of this whole mm. thing, which is strange. 